five for just a minute as we get started. Um, while everybody's kind of getting adjusted and that, let's take a few moments to review. Um, been a couple weeks since we had uh, looked at the book of Hebrews, but um, by now everyone should have very readily the three big P's, right, to the book of Hebrews. Uh, again, when you think of the book of Hebrews, it's all about what? All about the Lord Jesus and the fact that he is better, superior. You could probably throw in a few other adjectives there, but he is better, superior to anything and everything, obviously, and the scope of everything that Hebrews is addressing is when it comes to a relationship with God, with salvation, religious things, however you want to say it, but it's all about Jesus. That's really what it boils down to. And Hebrews, of course, is all about that. It's been called the epistle of better things, but it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we think about the book of Hebrews, those three words, beginning with P, that we've uh, mentioned numerous times now, uh, the purpose of that is, again, just to give you a uh, kind of a working structure, thinking through the book of Hebrews. And those big the three big words are what? And I say big, not that the words are that big, but big as far as they're the big ideas in the book of Hebrews. And they all refer to Jesus and the fact that he is better, he's superior. But what are those words? His person, his priesthood, and the principle, right? Which uh, the first two are kind of given, all right? who he is, and then his priesthood. That's his work, what he's, do, what he's done, what he is doing even. Um, but principle, that has to do with what? Faith in him, all right? And that's really, uh, you can know these facts about him, but not have faith, scriptural faith in him, and it not do you any good. And so his person and when we think of these three P's, all right, there's some, uh, obviously you can break these down. You can get very detailed. But um, when we think about the person of Christ, there were also three headings, three, letter, three words under that. Do you remember what those are? They have to do with his person, all right? First one is his deity, which is really foundational to everything. And the fact is that Hebrews presents the, uh, the truth that Jesus is God, right? Who he is. He's God, but he's also, he's not only God, he's, and I thought I had this different, but I guess I don't. Anyway, uh, he's not only God, but he's what? He's man, so the second word is humanity, all right? And, and again, this is something, sometimes people just kind of overlook this, but um, when we talk about Jesus being man, it's not just that, you know, he's God who took, he put on a body, but he became man. He took on humanity and really everything that that means. That is, that's, that's, that's hard to understand, all right? That's uh, one of those things that the Bible, it's, it's similar to the concept uh, of the Trinity, and that God is one, but he exists in three persons, all right? That, that's, that's deep, okay? That's, that's not 
easy to rationalize as human beings. There are things we can compare that to and, uh, and, and see, but yet at the same time, it's, it's deeper than we can really fully understand everything about it. But again, we're talking about God, and He is far above us, all right? We're very limited. We, we have uh, about, you know, just a, to use a, one of my favorite words, just a skinch of, you know, any kind of understanding compared to what God has. I mean, He's, he's big, we're small, right? But His person in, in the presentation in the book of Hebrews involves His deity, His humanity, and then also His... His faithfulness, right? The fact that he, he fulfilled everything that he was sent to do, all right? And then we, we get into the part of the book of Hebrews, of course, um, it's already on the board, but as far as the, the content of the book of Hebrews, it's really the first four chapters, basically, that focus on his person, and then his priesthood. What chapters are these in, before I put it up there? All right, basically five through ten, and then that would leave the principle uh, to what chapters? 10 through 13, it's, that's different than the others, so I guess that, that uh, uh, surprised me. Anyway, all right, so we're, we're talking presently about uh, his, his priesthood, chapters 5 through 10. If you remember, uh, I asked you to turn to chapter 5, but look at the last several verses of chapter 4. Remember, even as far back as chapter 2, the concept... The idea was thrown out there. You'll notice this in Hebrews as the writer progresses in his argument, his presentation about uh, Jesus. He'll throw, you'll see some, some words or ideas introduced and then it's like he just moves on, but then later he comes back and, and builds on that thought, all right? And this concept of Jesus' priesthood is, is no different. First mention in chapter 2 uh, and then in chapter 4, we really see the idea presented, all right? Verse 14, seeing then we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Now, remember, this is the closing verses of that uh, second um, warning passage that, that dealt with the, uh, the danger of unbelief, all right? In other words, remember, and then you use the example of the children of Israel in the wilderness. Why did they not get into the promised land? Because of unbelief, all right? Uh, that's, that's the cold, hard fact about it. They, they experienced so many things. And this is, this is uh, very much in keeping with the, the passage that we're currently in, in chapter 6, really with the warning there. But they experienced so many blessings of God. They, they had... Uh, experiences that those of us here, even Christians today who are saved and maybe been saved for a lot, that you don't have. I mean, it, just the fact of it, physical experiences of seeing, I mean, manna in the wilderness. Think about that. I mean, just think about all the things that they had the privilege to participate in, yet they still, many of them, most of them, did not really believe God. That is amazing, I mean, in many ways, if you think about it. Now, we're not much different than that in a lot of ways as well, but um, all that they had, all right? And so, uh, but that warning about the danger of unbelief, and which would result in missing God's rest, all right? His rest that He offers in Christ, which really for us is salvation, all right? Um, but 
That's why in, in these verses he's saying, let us hold fast our profession. Then he says, for we have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So you see this concept of the priesthood of Christ being talked about here um, and uh, then, obviously, the next several chapters launch into that and talking about the priesthood of Christ. Chapter 5, um, chapter five um, in this, let me, gives us a summary, a synopsis of uh, his priesthood, really the first 10 verses. It, it just kind of introduces the idea of him being a priest, it, it begins, first of all, remember the first four verses talking about just the basic idea of what a priest did, and then in verses 5 through uh, 11, or uh, yeah, 5 through 10, uh, it, it demonstrates how Christ has met and really even exceeded those qualifications there, and then um, in chapter, the rest of chapter 5, verse 11 through the end of chapter 6 is another warning passage. It's interesting, there's several that are real close together. Now, we're not going to see another warning after this until toward the end of chapter 10, and there's one more in chapter 12. So those are a ways off. But, but again, it's, it's interesting how that, that he just, obviously the Lord impressed this and, and directed all this, but how that this need to just stop and just drive home the seriousness of salvation and the seriousness of all this uh, to these people, all right? And we're going to get back into this, this warning here and, and finish that up here this morning. But then in chapter 7, he goes on then uh, expanding the presentation, the argument, if you want to say, of the superiority of Christ's priesthood, which uh, we may even get into that this morning. We'll just see how, <coughs> excuse me, how it goes. But um, I wanted to, to just kind of review here again for been a few weeks since we have, and then get back into talking about um, this passage. Let me find it on the slides here and get back up here. Um, again, we saw the that summary part in chapter 5. Then in chapter 5, verse 11 goes into this warning passage, right? And in the outline, you could it, it does kind of relate, all right, to Christ's priesthood as well. Because uh, in the big picture, when you think of it, because there's a significance to Christ's priesthood. And without that, people are going to miss salvation. All right, that's, that's kind of the idea of why I did that, plus it alliterates in the outline. All right, so anyway, the significance of his priesthood, this third warning passage. Now, when we look at this, it's just like the other ones we've seen and the two yet that will come later in, he in Hebrews. We need to keep in mind there's some serious statements in these, in these warnings, and people often misunderstand these, all right? And we've, we've talked about these enough, I think, that we can just kind of throw this out there, and I hope that everybody's on board. I'll be glad to, uh, you know, uh, spend more time talking about it if the need is there. But the point is, the Bible as a whole makes it very clear that salvation in Christ is a secure salvation. There is no room 
for the understanding that a person can lose his or her salvation when you see what all the Bible has to teach about it. All right? And so when we see statements in the Bible that, you know, we kind of think, okay, what does this mean? What is this saying? Is this saying that you can lose your salvation? All right? Obviously, it's important that we look and see what it says and examine the context of it and all of that. That's important. All right? But also, we need to keep that in the bigger context of the Bible's teaching. All right? And the Bible makes it clear. Jesus, in, in at least two occasions in talking to people, one is in John 4, the woman at the well, and the other in John 10, talking to the Jewish leaders, actually. Uh, and that, that, if you want to say the, the, the I am statement about him being the good shepherd, but there, he makes some categorical statements that those that are his will never perish. And he makes, he doesn't give any room for any exceptions in that whatsoever. It's just a, a categorical statement. Those that are his, all right, number one, he knows them. That's, that's important. They hear his voice and they follow him. Now, I, I got the first two of those out of order, but uh, those are three things that are there, all right, for everyone that is, is his sheep. And the next statement about them is, they shall never perish. Right? So the issue is not, can one of, sheep, one of Christ's sheep perish? The issue is, is one Christ's sheep? That's really what the issue is. All right? Keep that in mind as you look at any of these passages in the book of Hebrews that, again, seem to be hard things. All right? And these warnings are, are about people missing salvation, not really being saved, not about someone who's saved losing their salvation, all right? It's just the way it is, all right? And again, we could, we could talk about that for months, but the point is, I hope that everybody is, you know, I don't want to take for granted everybody has that conviction, but that's what the Bible teaches. There, there's just, there's no way, two ways around that when you look at what the Bible teaches, all right? So when we see this this passage here, and, and really the verses that are at contention, if you want to say that at all, are verses 4 through, <coughs> excuse me, 4 through 6 in chapter 6, where the Bible says here, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. Those are the verses in this warning that really are of any kind of argument as to that subject that we were just talking about, the security of the believer. So the question can be asked, as you look at these verses specifically then, all right, uh, are, they, are they teaching that, okay, if... Uh, it's, is it possible for a person who's saved to lose his salvation or her salvation? All right? Uh, and, and again, we would say in light of all the Bible, it's absolutely impossible. But when you look at these verses, you can see, and this, we talked about this the, two weeks ago, the last time we looked at this uh, at the book of Hebrews, and these statements, while they make statements, or the, if you want to say the, the conditions here, okay, for the people involved, there's, there's six statements, but... Um, they, they speak of spiritual experiences for sure, okay? But really when you examine them in light of, say, other passages in the, in the Bible that describe salvation, there's not really a clear statement here that these are people who experience salvation, 
It's not. All right. Uh, it never says they were forgiven. It never says they were justified. It never says, you know, a lot of other things that the Bible says about saved people. All right. It, it makes these statements. All right. But here's, here's the, the crux of this is, okay, for this group of people, it is impossible that if they, you know, the people meeting these qualifications, I'll talk about those just a second again, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance if they fall away. That's what it says, okay? Now, again, it doesn't say that they're saved and they lose their salvation. Falling away here, it's, it's uh, the Greek word is apostasy, is the I apostasize, and uh, it means to turn away from, all right? So it's not talking about they... We're, we're in salvation and fell out of salvation, but it's they turned away from it. And the idea is they never were saved, okay? But they had all kinds of spiritual experiences. Now, um, let, me, let me do this before we get much into that, all right? When you, and I have some slides there for this as well, if I can get to them. And again, keep in mind all these things when you consider a passage like this, all right? Again, the rules of interpreting the Bible, I mean, just the basic guidelines, purpose of the book of Hebrews, all right? Purpose of, of course, these warning passages, which is a matter, in a general sense, they're all individually and all five of them collectively warning about the seriousness of salvation and missing it, being able to be close to it and missing it, all right? And so when we think of this passage when you, you organize the passage, outline the passage, there's three main ideas, I think, in the whole warning. Now, the, the specific warning is just those several verses, but the warning passage that goes together is verse 11 of chapter 5 through the end of chapter 6. And you see as it begins into it, you see accusations of immaturity, you see an assessment of apostasy in the first part of chapter 6, and then you see really exhortations for salvation and this goes along with when we, we didn't get into this part last time, so that's what I want to jump into mainly. But when you, when you look at these verses, I think it also makes it clear that he's making an, an exception that the people that he's talking about in verses 4 through 6 aren't saved. All right? We'll, we'll see that in just a moment. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and, and have a word of prayer. We haven't prayed yet. And then we'll, we'll jump into this and... Uh, finish out chapter 6 here then, Lord willing, all right? Father, this morning, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We just ask that you'd help us now as we look into it, help us to have the right understanding of your word, and uh, Lord, that we would um, be uh, either convicted of our need or, um, Lord, that we would be exhorted of uh, our blessings that we have in Christ this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. In the warning passage, keep in mind also what was before it and what comes after it. This is just an insertion, if you want to say, in the flow of the book of Hebrews that is talking about the priesthood of Christ. The verses immediately before it talk about, uh, how's it worded? Um, verse 10 of chapter 5, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek, all right? And then he, he pauses here again, and, and he says in verse 11, which begins this digression here, all right, he says, of whom, so in other words, it's talking about 
And, and really, in reality, it's not just Jesus or Melchizedek, but the of whom is actually, it's a, it's a, a neuter pronoun, and, and the, it's the idea of Christ being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's, that's really what it's, it's talking about. Not just Melchizedek, or not just about Christ, but Christ being called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He says, in other words, of that, it's, we have a lot of things, many things to say, and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. All right? In other words, he says, there's a, there's a lot here. And actually, the idea is, this is a great thing, is what he's saying. And great, probably in the sense that it's, it's an important matter. But it's also a difficult matter, a deep matter, and that's why he says what he says in the next several verses, that, that because you are dull of hearing, that's why it's hard to present it. Now remember, we talked about this before, the word dull in verse uh, 11, it's the same word in verse 12 of the next chapter, that you be not slothful, same word, translated slothful there. The idea is that because they were lazy in their hearing, that's why it was hard to present it. Because they weren't where they should have been to be able to listen to it, is what he's saying. All right? And you can see the idea of an immaturity that's, that's talked about here. Right? It says, for when the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe, but strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now I think that, that what he's talking about here in this idea of this, if you want to say this, accusations of immaturity, it's not just necessarily all the way across the board, but what he's talking about is in this matter of the priesthood and the Old Testament priesthood and this matter of Christ being a priest after the order of Melchizedek, all right? And that is something that they needed to understand because of what we'll see to follow in chapter 7, which deals in a lot more depth with this matter of Christ and Melchizedek, all right? Uh, and so he's stopping now and digressing to just drive home the importance of this point. And then he even... Talk, goes into chapter 6, all right, therefore leaving the principles of the doctrines of Christ. Now, we, we had mentioned this a few weeks ago, so I don't want to spend all the time on this again, but he's not talking about basic Christianity there. This is a comparison between the Old Testament presentation of the Messiah. Remember, the New Testament word Christ is the same as the Old Testament concept Messiah, all right? Messiah in the Old Testament is the anointed one of God. Christ in the New Testament is the anointed one of God. It's a difference of languages, all right? But so when he says the doctrine of Christ here, he's not talking about the gospel. He's not talking about salvation in the New Testament. He's talking about the doctrine of Messiah, all right? Just general principles here, all right? The doctrine of Messiah was taught in the Old Testament. But there were just basically, if you want to say, foundational elements brought out about it. It's expanded in the New Testament. And that's the point he's making is you're just some of the people he's talking about here, they were just they wouldn't move on from the Old Testament teaching. They were just bogged down in it and 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 they needed to move on. And that's what he says that in verse 3, this we will do if God permit, because he wants to present this 
but he's saying they were lazy of hearing and really didn't want to move on. But they needed to, all right? They need to move on and accept all that, of course, what the New Testament teaches about Christ, about Messiah. And then he issues this serious warning, all right? That it's impossible to renew again repentance those that meet these certain qualifications. And as we said two weeks ago, the, it, the way it's presented here is somebody has to meet all of these qualifications for that to be the case. And I believe, for the most part, these are things that pertain to the earthly ministry of Jesus. All right? The fact, uh, and, and we used, we, we, we went to a couple scriptures and I used one person as an example. I don't know if anybody remembers who that was. All right? That, in my opinion, fits the bill very perfectly of who these verses are describing. All right? Judas Iscariot. When you go back and look at the Gospels, Judas was there, not, but he wasn't just there. He participated in the ministry with the other apostles in, in preaching and casting out devils and doing all kinds of things. But Judas was obviously not saved. And he's, in my opinion, probably the greatest example of someone that you can present as being so close to Christ, but yet rejecting him. And... He doesn't name Judas here, right? And, and again, it, it's not necessarily limited to Judas, but it's a similar circumstance. Those that had so much opportunity, they had, and, and when you look at it in light of the earthly ministry of Christ in that first century, there were a lot of people that had, had that kind of exposure and opportunity, but turned from him. A lot of people. And, and, and again, it's one of those situations, like, I, it blows my mind to think, you know, uh, the triumphal entry and how multitudes of people were crying out, Hosanna! You know, I mean, and we're, we're involved in that so much so that the, the Pharisees told Jesus, you know, you better, do you understand what they're saying? <laughs> and, and they were getting worried, you know. And then just days later, three, four days later, the mobs are crying, and probably a lot of the same people are crying, crucify him, crucify him. I mean, they were close, but they never crossed the line into having faith in Christ. They, when it came down to it, they chose to reject him. And again, there's probably many people that fit that description, okay? But that's the kind of people that are being talked about in these verses. And for those kind of people, what else can be done is the idea. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance because they've rejected everything that was offered. They came to a point and turned from it. They turned away from it. All right, so in many ways, this is not a sin that Christians can commit, okay, for one thing. But it's something that people can do, all right? Now, by principle, all right, if you want to look at it in a general principle, there's probably a lot of people like this, right? God offers salvation. God offers grace. But there will come a time when people cross the line. Either just in the matter of time, right? Because it's going to become too late. Or in any individual's life, there might come a time when a person says no to God enough that he just leaves them alone. That's a possibility. That's a scary thought if you think about it. And if, and if, 
if anybody's here and is not saved, okay, and I'm not pointing my finger at anybody or whatever, but that ought to be a scary thought. That really should. To think you can go so far in saying no to the Holy Spirit's conviction that the Lord will just leave you alone. That's serious. Right? And that's the intent of the writer of Hebrews, is to bring out the seriousness of this. Okay? And then he moves on. All right? We looked at those verses. I don't want to spend all of our time there. We've got a little bit of time left. All right? And then he, said, and he used the example. We, we, we kind of just stopped at verse 6. All right? He used the exa- an illustration, if you want to say, in verse 7. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessings from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. The idea is just using an illustration of, you could think of it in, a, in an agricultural context, right? Ground that brings forth fruit, you know, it receives rain, it brings forth fruit. It's, it's doing what it's supposed to do. It's blessed, right? But the same kind of earth, there's, there's portions of ground and earth that don't do that. They get rained upon just like the other parts, but they bring forth weeds, thorns, briars, which are not useful. And so if anybody's going to use that, I mean, even like this time of the year, it's done a little bit around here, but like out in, in, when, in Colorado, western Colorado, for instance, uh, in the spring, they're usually about in, the, in May is when it happens, but the, everything out there that grows pretty much is by irrigation in the summer, right? You don't get rain out there, it, you get snow in the, in the winter, and then reservoirs hold that, and then you, irrigation is what brings the water to the to the to the agriculture there, all right? And there's irrigation ditches everywhere, all right? Beside just about every road, there's an irrigation ditch, all right? Just a, a canal. I mean, some of the bigger, you know, there's big ones, and then as you get to smaller, it, it just like everything else, it gets smaller and smaller. But, and, and people have to pay for the rights to use the water and various things like that. But what I was getting at is there's wild stuff then that'll start growing, all right, in the spring in those uh, ditches and that. And they'll, they'll, you'll see smoke this time of the year out there because they burn all these ditches out, get rid of all the junk out of the ditches so that they can have water flowing through them uh, more unrestricted and so on uh, when, they, when they open the irrigation system. Um, that's common. And here, I mean, people burn things off some, all right? Not as much as there, but, um, but that's the idea what he's talking about here, right? Those that are unsaved, the whole point is there's no fruit there, and sooner or later, I mean, the, whole, the only thing that can be done is just burn the ditch off, so to speak, all right? Anyway, uh, then he says, notice verse 9. This is where come to this exhortation part of, I think, okay. The exhortation part here in this warning, all right? And this is another reason why I believe he's not talking about saved people losing their salvation. Notice what, what verse 9, how it starts. It says, what's the first word, for instance? But, all right, he's making a contrast here. He says, but, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. Now, notice the difference in pronouns used. In verses 4 through 6, all the pronouns are what you would call third person. They, those, them. All right? 
Verse 9, he gets back to you. All right? So in verses 4 through 6, he's not necessarily pointing his finger at anybody in the congregation that received this, this letter, this epistle, as such. There may have been somebody that needed it. Okay, that's, but the point is, it's there as a warning, but now he gets back to addressing those in that congregation, and I believe that the writer believed that at least most of the people he was writing to were saved. Right? Just like when a, when a pastor or somebody stands up and addresses the church, right? it's possible there's an unsaved person in the midst of a church. Some churches more, okay, uh, obviously, than others, but the point being is, for the most part, that's not the case, right? And, you're, you know, mostly you're addressing ideas that apply to, to the saved people now, all right? And that, that's the same idea here, all right? So he changes courses, and he's addressing now, he changes it back to you, all right? Not just using that example of people and that serious warning, all right? So he gets back to them. So notice, uh, notice this here. Let me get to my particular notes here on this, all right? You see this exhortation, all right? So you see the change here, and then he says, but you, and he calls them beloved, and so on. And then he says, but we're persuaded better things of you, all right? In other words, I don't believe this is true for all of you is what he's saying. It's only those people we were talking about that missed this, okay? But you, notice what he says, we're persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. And the idea is, even though we said what we said, all right, we're convinced that there's better things for you who are saved, obviously. All right, for God is not unrighteous to forget your work, <clears throat> excuse me, and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you to show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope to the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. All right, so you see here, again, this exhortation for insurance. You know, for insur assurance, not insurance, but assurance purposes here, all right? He's, he's also not only wanting to warn, if you want to say, people that are mingled with saved people who aren't saved, unsaved people who are mingled with people that are saved in the church, but he's also wanting to encourage and exhort those that are saved, all right, uh, <clears throat> in their faith in Christ here. And then, so notice the things that he says. He makes this change. Uh, it's, it, we're persuaded there's better things, all right, for you, things that accompany salvation, even though we said what we said, all right, here. But notice he brings in the idea of diligence. And the point is, do you realize, if you stop and think about it, you can realize it and remember, if you want to say that, in your life. But if you stop and analyze things, when you are diligent about what you're supposed to be doing, when you're fervent and zealous you're not doubting, are you? Diligence brings assurance, right? I mean, there's other things in our lives that bring assurance, but in this passage, notice he says, um, lost my place, that you be not slothful, but followers of them who through patience and endurance inherit the promises. Verse 11, he says, show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, all right? So diligence brings assurance. And, and really, I think he's, he's alluding to the fact that the writer here, whoever he is, he's witnessed things in their lives that give him assurance that they're saved. I mean, you know, he sees, he sees things. In fact, he mentions in, 
uh, verse 10, about their work and labor of love and showing that you've showed toward his name. They probably minister to him, right? He says that they minister to the saints and do minister um, and, and so on. Um, but um, God, here's the thing, God notices and he truly knows and knows truly, of course, but God notices and rewards. That's part of the point of what he's saying here. He's writing to exhort them, all right? Be encouraged if you're saved, all right? And keep on serving. Be diligent because that brings assurance, but also keep in mind that God will reward. He brings promises. Sometimes it's easy to lose sight of that. You get bogged down in the, the fight, if you want to say, of the day-to-day, and you know, you're not always reminded that there is a day coming when it won't be this way. And there is a, a time of reward coming, all right? But um, the writer's desire here is that every one of them would show the same diligence and have full assurance. And he's, he's exhorting them to be zealous and demonstrate faith and patience. Notice in verse 12, again, he says, be not slothful, but he says, followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Numerous times the Bible encourages us to look to others that have gone before us as good examples. Now, there's no perfect example except for Christ, okay? But there are many others that we can look to for encouragement and example of, you know, and that's, that's one reason why the Bible's full of historical examples. I mean, 1 Corinthians 10, Romans chapter 15, both make it very clear that the things that are in the Old Testament for us New Testament Christians, they're there for examples for us. And there's both good examples and bad examples, obviously, of people and how they, uh, you know, responded to God and so on. And so uh, he's saying, you know, follow those that who through faith and patience have inherited the promises. Now go look at verse 13 and notice the one example that he cites here. Who is it? Abraham. All right. And of course, remember, this is the epistle to who? The Hebrews. All right. These are Hebrew Christians, Jewish people, that first century. All right. And this is, I mean, this is a, probably in some ways a difficult time for many of them as they want to follow God wholly, but yet they realize that also involves leaving some things behind. But it's interesting that in doing so, he's using Abraham as an example. The Jews would look to Abraham as their father, right? The father of the Jews, all right? And I, I think I've often thought about that question. Who was the first Jew? I mean... You would think that the first Jew, all of his offspring would be Jews, right? All of Abraham's offspring weren't Jews. But anyway, we'll leave that for another time. Uh, <laughs> but he uses Abraham as an example here of someone who, was, who had faith and also had patience, right, in following the promise of God, right? Later on in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11, Abraham is brought up again as an example. Lots of others are in that chapter as well, but he's brought up again, all right? And so uh, Abraham serves as a good person to bring up in this case here for the writer because he's, 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 because of what he's writing about and the transition of 
Old Testament things to New Testament things, so to speak. But he says, for when God, in verse 13, made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply these. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. All right. Now, the point being there is, he's saying to be not be slothful, but be diligent, and be trusting and be patient in it. Because the point is, in our Christian lives, we don't always see the fulfillment of promises and things that we expect right away, right? And Abraham's a good example of that. Abraham waited. I mean, if you think about this, God promised Abraham a seed. Now, again, there's, in, in God's promise to Abraham of that, there's multi-layers in that, okay? Obviously, Isaac was promised of God, but ultimately that seed referred to as Christ. Now, he had to have a son in order for Christ to eventually be born. But, but think about this. Abraham waited, you could say, at least 25 years for that promise to be fulfilled. If you put that in, in the scope of your life, 25 years, I mean, that's quite a while to wait for something, isn't it? And still, I mean, now Abraham, he got sidetracked a few times, got out of step, so to speak. But yet, the big picture, Abraham was still pursuing and following God and waiting for that promise. All right? I mean, again, he, he had a few uh, missteps, if you want to say, along the way. Because, again, only Jesus is completely faithful, not Abraham, not Moses, but only Jesus. But, but Abraham's a good example of someone who was keeping his eyes, following what God said, faith in God, but yet he had to wait. He had to face trials. He had to face uh, hurdles, if you want to say, along that journey. But yet, in the end, God kept his word. I mean, you think about the test with Isaac when, in Genesis 22, when God, I mean, Isaac had been born, and there's argument on as to how old Isaac was at this point. Some think Isaac may have been a grown man at this point. But when, when God told Abraham in Genesis 22 to take your son, I, I always think it's interesting the way he words this, this challenge. He says, take your son, your only son, the son that you love. I mean, he just keeps like layering the descriptions on here. Take him and offer him as a sacrifice to me. Is that a test to Abraham's faith? Whew, yeah. I mean, he, I, I believe that Hebrews 11 makes it clear that Abraham believed that if he would have killed Isaac, God would have raised him from the dead. Because God knew that that was the promised son. And he, you know, he wasn't doubting, you know, God. It, I mean, it, it's just an amazing thing when you think about it. But what I'm saying is, Isaac, uh, Abraham had a lot of... He, there was a lot of things thrown in his path to challenge his faith, but, in, but his faith, and again, he had some, some hiccups along the way, so to speak, but all in all, the point is, Abraham's faith was a real faith, and God rewarded that in the end. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is bringing out to these people. All right, yeah, there's some difficulty. You might have to suffer. I mean, these people may have been ostracized from their families for turning to Christ. I mean, that's a big thing, you know? I mean, 
there are people today that face that, in, in, in some in our country, but a lot in other countries, and so on. And yet, you know, the point is, God will be faithful to those people, right? Um, but he's saying, diligence brings assurance, be, de- be zealous and demonstrate faith and patience. And then in verses 13 through 20, i got to hurry here. You see, uh, relying upon the promise of God brings assurance as well. Let me just highlight some things in these verses, verses 13 through 20. Um, we read part of them there. But Abraham is an example of believing God's promise and patiently enduring until eventually receiving the promise. God had made a promise to Abraham and he confirmed it with an oath. He brings that up here. Uh, in these verses that not only did God promise Abraham something, there was a point in time in Genesis 15, God made a covenant with Abraham. And I I think that's probably what he's referring to here is that instance. But the point being is that God confirmed his previous promise now with an oath. I mean, as if his promise wasn't enough. Okay, that's, that's the idea. But he then went a step farther and ritualized in a, in a manner that Abraham and other men could, could uh, understand because of the covenant things that went on. He, he went through that ritual to demonstrate that he really meant business about this promise. And he, he made an oath to Abraham is the idea. All right? He says, for men... Uh, uh, Verse 15, and so Abraham, after he patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily uh, swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. All right. In other words, some situations, people, groups could be at odds, and they would have to come to an agreement, all right, and agree to something that, okay, they're going to have a ceasefire, they're going to end this strife, this war, whatever, right? People do that. But he's saying we're in God, more willing, abundant, more willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability, that means unchangingness, of his counsel confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. There's an interesting question that always comes to my mind when I read this verse, and that is, what are those two things, all right? Two immutable things, it says. Two unchangeable things. Now, I think in the context, what it's talking about is that God made a promise to Abraham, and then he also confirmed it with an oath. All right? But then he he says it's impossible for God to lie. So think of this. In Hebrews chapter 6, there are two things. Uh, In fact, I think... No, there's several outside of Hebrews. But in the book of Hebrews, I believe there's four times the word, the, this word that's translated impossible occurs. Two of them are here in chapter 6. One is that it's impossible for those that met those conditions, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. But then it also says the exact same word used, it's impossible for God to lie. So God cannot lie. All right, I mean, it's impossible. That's a, that's a wonderful statement when you think about it. And in the context of this, it's just reiterating the fact we can trust God's promises. Because he is, it's not just that he's not going to. It's impossible for God to lie because it goes against his character. God can't do anything that, that goes against his character. And so uh, it's impossible for him to lie. 
And he says that we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. So what is that hope? Now he's transitioning. It's the end of this uh, detour, if you want to say. He's getting back on the highway now uh, in, in the, the flow of the book of Hebrews. And, you know, we have this hope, all right? Which hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entered into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is, is for us entered, even Jesus, made and high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So now he gets back on track with what he, was ta- what he first introduced way back in chapter 5 and then digressed into this warning, all right? which ends in in an exhortation to those that are saved to keep trusting. God will fulfill His promises, and we have a hope. That's the idea. That hope is Jesus, who has entered into the veil, uh, and He is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then He gets back in chapter 7 talking about that argument of, of Christ's priesthood being after the order of Melchizedek. So, again, relying upon the promise of God brings assurance. Abraham is an example of believing God's promise, patiently enduring until eventually receiving the promise. God had made His promise to Abraham, and He confirmed it with an oath. It's impossible for God to lie. We have the promise from God concerning Christ. We should flee to Him for refuge and hope. That's interesting how that's worded in those last several verses. He's our refuge and hope. He's the place of safety to run to, that we need to flee to. In other words, it doesn't matter what a person's religion is, it's Christ that makes the difference. He is the place of safety. It's not a system of religion, it's Christ. He is the hope, all right? And because He is our only hope is the idea. And then he, again, he comes back now to this. So the point, the purpose of this whole warning, number one, was to warn those who have stopped short of genuine faith in Christ that there is no other hope. And then secondly, exhort those truly trusting Christ that He is the only hope. Jesus is the forerunner, and He's made an eternal high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then he jumps right back into talking about Jesus and Melchizedek, and we're out of time. But so... Lord willing, next week, that's what we'll do, jump back in at chapter 7, and this is neat here. I mean, this, this really starts, because again, he's saying, I really wanted to set, there's so much here we need to talk about, but he had to warn them before he start, could start talking about it, because you need, we, and he's saying they needed to pay attention to this, all right? This isn't, and particularly, I think, for them as Jews, it wasn't easy to accept because of tradition, okay? But it's also not easy to accept in the sense that this is not just some, as he calls it, milk. This is some pretty deep stuff here in the Bible. And if a person truly gets this about Jesus and his priesthood and that, it makes salvation make a whole lot other sense, is, is the idea. All right? Again, it, it's not a... It's not a matter of something that you have to do and so on necessarily, but it's a matter of what Christ has done, and your responsibility is to trust Him, to submit yourself to Him. Flee to Him, and Him alone is the idea. Let's, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for just this portion of your word. Help us now as we progress in uh, in the next weeks in through the book of Hebrews and We just pray that most of all, the Lord Jesus would be honored. It's His name we pray. Amen.